In this special review edition of the Late Edition, Monocle's editors and correspondents look back at one of the year's big news stories, the US presidential election. From the Iowa caucuses to Joe Biden's basement, we'll take the long view on how an unprecedented election year will inform the next four years in US presidential politics. That's all to come here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24 with me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto. And it is New Year's Day, so a very happy new year to you all and a very happy new year to our guests today too. Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello, who's in London for us, and our correspondent in New York City, Henry Reese Sheridan. Carlotta, Henry, a happy new year to you. How are these first few hours of 2021 treating you so far? Carlotta, let's start with you. Well, a happy new year to you too, Thomas. Well, it has been a good year so far. So far, these first few hours have been much better than I, I'd say 2020 altogether. Uh, but you know, I was really fortunate over the Christmas period to be able to uh, go back to my home country of Portugal, to the island of Madeira, and spend some time with my family. Um, but uh, strange to hop on an airplane for the first time um, in ages uh, when we I was so used to do that all the time, especially with our with Monocle and reporting all over the world. So it was nice to get a bit of normality back. Well, the year's shaping up okay so far. Thanks very much for asking. I mean, to be honest with you, if it's much worse than last year, I'm I'm not sure I want to see the end of it, but uh, fingers crossed. (laughs) I'm not sure you're alone there, Henry, but Henry Sheridan, Carlotta Rabello, it's great to kick off a new year with you both here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Well, Carlotta, let's start with you and start at the start, shall we, of an unprecedented US presidential race in 2020 and the Democratic primary process. You reported on some of those very early stages of the process for Monocle from Los Angeles at the end of 2019. And perhaps the biggest story of the process in those early stages, as it stays in my mind anyway, was just how large a field the the presidential primary for the Democrats was and how diverse a field it was. Too. The big question, as I recall at least, was whether a large field was good or bad for the Democrats in terms of how they were going to approach um, Donald Trump's presidency and unseating him from the White House, wasn't it? What do you recall of those early debates back at the start of the process, Carlotta? I just remember being uh, in our bureau in Los Angeles trying to follow the very first uh, few debates ahead of the primaries and just trying to keep up with all the different names on stages, uh, what each candidate represented, the main differences between them. I mean, even looking back now at some of the names that I had completely forgotten uh, had been (laughs) a part of the whole uh, process, Um, you know, some of them with a lot of promise uh, and uh, during those early stages with some profiles being written up about could this be the breakaway star from the party but I do agree with what you just mentioned this idea that having such a um, an array, such a pool of candidates at a time that the Democratic Party really needed to be united, it's it really highlighted where the country stood at that stage. Um, You know, this idea of the old guard within the Democratic Party trying to look, you know, for someone who really represents them and the new generation wanting someone who would shake things up 
and not necessarily be someone who's immediately recognizable. Um, I, I, I just remember <laughs> following those debates. And of course, we now looking back uh, in earnest to the heated exchanges between then uh, the candidates Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, uh, between the two of them. But, you know, even uh, just observing Marianne Williamson, do you remember her trying to channel the best energies from all of us for the year ahead? Maybe she should have uh, helped us see 2020 through. <laughs> Well, among those candidates who threw their hat into the Democratic primary race a little later than most of the others who took to the primary stage was the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. And I spoke to him very briefly outside a voting station on the day of the New Hampshire primary back in February. My name is Deval Patrick. I'm the former governor of Massachusetts. I'm running for president of the United States. And how are things feeling today? Is it a festival? We atmosphere? have been to, uh, well, it's wet and cold, um, but the welcome and reception has been very warm indeed. We have been to about 14 of some 37 polling places we'll visit around the state today. And the turnout has uh, has varied depending on the time of day, but given the weather, pretty good. And what's at stake in the primary this time around from your point of view? Well, you know, we are, I came in in November, and, uh, uh, and though no one has voted before today, We've been uh, we've been climbing forward um, uh, in the face of a narrative about being late, and that narrative is a uh, uh, is a challenge. But in fact, there is no one else in this race um, who has more uh, relevant life and leadership experience for the job, um, can build coalitions and get things done. And we're making that case, and I think making it quite well. Deval Patrick there, the former presidential candidate, speaking to me on the day of the New Hampshire primary earlier this year. Uh, Henry, it's perhaps easy to forget just how qualified so many of the Democratic candidates were at the start of the process, given that there were so many of them at those early stages. They didn't really make much headway, I guess, for one reason or another. It's also, I guess, perhaps easy to forget just how remarkable the revival of Joe Biden's campaign was uh, back at the South Carolina primary at the end of February. I remember being in a school hall in Des Moines in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses right at the start of the process. And the way they'd laid out the school hall was that there were uh, allotted seats, if you like, for each of the candidates who are running. So Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden had the biggest block of seats uh, reserved for those supporters who are going to cast their votes for their candidates. And I remember looking and the Bernie Sanders section was absolutely full. The other smaller sections for Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg and some of the other candidates, they were absolutely chock-a-block too. And the section for Joe Biden was essentially empty and it was quite an extraordinary sight. You know, you fast forward then to South Carolina when Joe Biden won by a margin that really has never been the case for someone who is that far behind uh, in the early stages of a, of a democratic primary race. You know, it's kind of good to remember that there was quite a moment of drama in that score for Joe Biden too, wasn't there? The extent to which it demonstrated how many kind of like, how ideologically volatile the debate within the Democratic Party is at, the, at that time was. It, 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 it's like a really interesting kind of time capsule in history that I think people will look back on for, for a long time. And you might see some of those policies, you know, some of the, some of the candidates that dropped out relatively early may in retrospect come to be seen as prescient uh, uh, if some of these more progressive policies become adopted uh, by, by mainstream Democrats. And just to jump in on that point, Henry, during the primaries debates, one thing that for me became apparent that really illustrates that was the discussion on climate change. You know, just two election cycles ago, um, 
you wouldn't expect anyone to br- talk about climate change unless they were representing the equivalent of a Green Party, for example, um, uh, you know, environmental rights. Whereas now you have candidates from, you know, the most uh, conservative wing of the Democratic Party to the most liberals, uh, all speaking about climate change. And that happens because of candidates over the years, such much like Andrew Yang this time around, who have been able to push that discourse forward. Well, let's take a few gentle steps ahead now, shall we, in this review of the 2020 presidential race in the US into the presidential campaign itself. As the coronavirus outbreak took hold in the United States, it challenged in a dramatic way the campaigning strategies of both President Trump and his challenger, Joe Biden. Henry, I think it's fair to characterise the the shift or like the division, I guess, of of approaches uh, to the campaign, which had very little precedent in terms of the restrictions the pandemic put upon it by saying that it was essentially Biden's basement versus Trump's rallies. Is that a fair sort of characterization for you, do you think? And how do you think this idea of Joe Biden running a presidential campaign effectively from his house uh, in Delaware, how do you think that played out for him? Well, the, the medium was very much the message for both Trump and Biden. They demonstrated through their modes of communication what their political stances were. And for Trump, I mean, they were diametrically opposed. It it almost goes without saying. Trump uh, wanted to kind of embody his scepticism about the severity of the virus by meeting with fans, going to rallies, you know, uh, uh, not wearing a mask, and eventually, of course, catching the virus. Joe Biden was at the absolute other end of the spectrum, stayed almost the entire time in his in his basement, in his home, uh, actually communicated from there with the public relatively little, certainly less than you'd expect from a, a man running for president and sometimes encountered criticism along the lines of that he should be doing more. Um, but, you know, at the, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, he, he was leading by example. I think that aside from... The fact that he is an at-risk individual because of his because of his age, and aside from the fact that he was just kind of like doing what everyone should be doing according to the CDC guidelines, he 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 was also demonstrating a kind of style of leadership that you know hewed to expert advice that deferred to uh, uh, policy policy specialists that was not hubristic that didn't see himself as above the rules that everyone else has to play by. And in doing that, he was trying to kind of send a message with his actions, as well as his words, which, I mean, listen, he, he won, so I'm going to say it paid off. There hasn't been much kind of reporting on what people specifically think, to think about the way he, he campaigned. But um, if he'd lost the election, then we'd be looking back and saying that he should have done more, wouldn't we? It's, it's difficult to kind of say to say what impact that had. But um, he behaved in a, in, in a way that one would hope everyone would behave uh, uh, for a person of his demographic. And Carlotta, before we come to you about the potency of Donald Trump's rallies during this campaign and how perhaps that potency changed as the pandemic raged in the US, let's hear now some voters' voices. I was at a Trump rally in South Carolina, in Charleston. This was one of his final rallies, I recall, uh, before the first lockdown measures came into place in the United States. Uh, Let's hear now from some of those voters who were at that rally, just to get a sense of the mood among them at that time. 
time. My name is Marcia Stasek. I live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and this is my first Trump rally. It's exciting. It's, it's like overwhelming. It's like being at the biggest football game you could ever go to and wait for the big quarterback to come out. He fills these places all the time, and I think there's even people outside. He's exciting to listen to. He's entertaining. He's great. We love him. My name is Tammy Daniels, and I'm supporting President Trump for his re-election in 2020. I am very excited. We got here at 5 o'clock in the morning, so we are excited. Oh, everybody's really friendly and nice, and I don't think there's a mad person around here. Unless they're liberal, but I don't think they're here. I think the Democrats are have gone crazy. They are lunatics. But, you know, I'm not Democrat, so I guess Democrats might like them. Hi, I'm Jennifer Holland, and I'm glad to be here at the rally. It's right here in our hometown, and I'm just so excited to be here. This is the first time I've ever get to see my president up close. It doesn't matter what president, it's just our president. We respect and honor him, and I'm here to enjoy the event and the excitement. I'm anxious to hear his words. I'm wanting to praise everything that he's done for our country. There's so much negativity going on. We need to hold together our party and our strength, and I'm welcome to anything he has to say. I'm trusting him, and I'm praising him. I believe in him. Some voices there from the crowd at a Donald Trump rally in South Carolina at the end of February. Carlotta, Donald Trump had one of the most effective struts of his campaigning strategy, broadly speaking, kicked out from underneath him by the pandemic. But then he resurrected the campaign rally, infamously, I guess now you could say, in Tulsa in Oklahoma. Could you just take us back to the huge symbolism on so many fronts that was churned up by this comeback rally in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, as the Trump campaign described it at the time. Yeah, so this was, as you said, uh, Trump's comeback rally, um, I believe, in this over the summer in August. And uh, he, as we know, so much of the appeal of Trump and Trump's brand as a politician has to do with his interactions with voters, the, the rallies, the spectacle, the, uh, the show uh, on display every time um, he holds one, an event and, you know, the motorcades that follows, the everything, uh, the pomp and circumstance that he drags with him. So the, the fact that he wasn't able to do that for so many months because of coronavirus lockdowns and restrictions, this was meant to be, you know, his big comeback, big triumph, showing how, you know, he is the candidate. And actually, you know, it was quite disappointing. Um, it was a bit of an embarrassment. The The arena in Tulsa, which had um, 19,000 people uh, as capacity, was not even uh, half uh, full. Um, photos the next day were um, circulating of the event where lots of empty seats, lots of space um, in the crowd. And I think this disappointing attendance at the rally showed two things. Uh, First, that people had genuine fears about coronavirus, despite the um, popular belief that much of his base uh, much and many of his followers um, do believe that coronavirus is a hoax or is not as bad as we know it to be um, and do follow along some conspiracy line. So it showed that that actually is not exactly true and that a lot of people are, were scared of the virus. But it also showed perhaps 
highlighted for the first time up until that point in the uh, election process that the reality of Trump's um, sliding poll numbers and just how bad they were. You know, his approval ratings um, never really reached 50% um, all the time he's been in office. And at that time, at the time of the rally in Tulsa, it was firmly in the low 40s. So it was this so this combination, this almost perfect storm for his campaign um, to kind of realize he was not the star candidate that they had um, last time around, that they had in 2016. Well, Henry, it wasn't just the president or members of Congress or the Senate that voters were casting their ballots for in 2020, was it? There were several down-ballot initiatives that caught your eye during the process. Can you walk us through some of the most notable ones from your point of view that caught your eye during the 2020 election season? Yeah, totally. I think one fairly significant story that flew under the radar was that of marijuana legalisation. There were some really significant wins for uh, uh, weed legalisation advocates. So Montana, Arizona, New Jersey and South Dakota all voted to legalise recreational, uh, not medical, so just recreational marijuana use uh, for adults, um, which, you know, on the face of it, obviously signals a shift in public norms, greater acceptance of use uh, of the drug uh, as a recreational activity. Um, But also, uh, there was a rationale behind these moves uh, that was rooted in social justice. Uh, One of some of the most powerful arguments uh, for legalising marijuana, particularly for people who aren't interested in using it recreationally or don't necessarily uh, feel particularly moved to legalise it just because it's a fun thing to do, uh, is that arrests uh, of, 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 in particular, uh, young men of colour uh, for uh, marijuana usage, so for small-scale drug uh, crimes, uh, is actually a massive driver of, of incarceration uh, across the United States. It was a particularly big problem in New Jersey, and New Jersey's governor, Phil Murphy, pushed for marijuana legalisation for a long time uh, according to that specific rationale. And I think we can hear a clip of him now uh, uh, talking a little bit about, uh, about the issue in the wake of that victory. We now join the growing number of states that have come to the rightful conclusion that our marijuana laws had done more harm than good, had ruined more futures than they had helped and hurt many communities by saddling black and brown people, predominantly young men, with an arrest and a host of collateral consequences for non-violent offenses. And in many cases, sadly, those consequences were carried for the rest of their lives. That was New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy there. Henry, just quickly, if you could, what were some of the other initiatives that were passed by voters on Election Day that also caught your eye? Mississippi... Uh, voted to have a new flag. Uh, Now, the reason that they voted for a new flag and the reason that this is a a notable issue, in my opinion, is that it was the only state remaining uh, since 2003 when Georgia got a new flag whose flag featured the Confederate banner, um, which is pretty crazy uh, that that was was still up there in 2020. Um, Now, there has been pressure for the flag to change for a little while since 2015 
all eight of the state's public universities have refused to fly the state flags. It's also proved a bit of a national embarrassment for the state. So there was a, a flag display in, 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 well, flag displays actually in New Jersey, Oregon and Philadelphia uh, that included all of the state flags, except Mississippi's because it contained this Confederate banner. Um, obviously, the kind of proximate cause for the, for the big push to finally get it changed uh, with this summer's demonstrations over racial justice in general, but more particularly uh, the threat of several major college sports conferences, uh, college sports being a huge deal in the southern states. Uh, basically, they threatened to boycott the state unless the flag was changed. Uh, it forced a reckoning, and, and Mississippi has a, a quite fetching, in my opinion, a new flag uh, not featuring, uh, featuring excuse me, the Confederate banner. Well, in the final few minutes of this look back at an election year in the United States, let's look ahead, shall we, to Inauguration Day on the 20th of January. Carlotta, just briefly to you, how important will Inauguration Day for Joe Biden be, do you think? Particularly the tone he decides to set in his inauguration address. I think with Joe Biden, this idea of bringing the nation together, of healing wounds and reaching across the aisle and trying to compromise um, to make the country better, to, you know, pull the US out of the crisis created by coronavirus, as many other countries are doing the same. Uh, But I think that will be the core thing on Inauguration Day. People will be looking for that message of support. They will be looking out for a leadership for the first time in four years. And the idea that, you know what, this might not be my guy, but I feel like he will listen to me. The speculation that Trump might decamp to Florida, completely skip the inauguration altogether and hold a simultaneous rally clashing with it, may even announce a run for 2024 to become president again. I think sooner rather than later, he's going to fade from the news cycle and from the mouths of both pundits and politicians. Inevitably, power wanes quite quickly in Washington. And once Trump's out of office, I think that Biden's going to, yeah, he's going to relish just not having to think about him, not having to talk about him. He won't be alone in that regard, of course. Well, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, it's been great to cast an eye back over an unprecedented US presidential election year. A very happy new year to you both. And thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. That is all I'm afraid to say we have time for for this special review edition of The Late Edition. Our studio manager in London was Sam Impey. A big thanks to her as always as well. Do stay with us here at Monocle 24 for more great programming to start the new year with. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto, thank you very much for listening and a very happy new year to you. Mm-hmm.